I want you to pick the most traumatic thing I'm saying <laughs> and stick it first. And then it cuts to the song. <laughs> print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilsenbrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relief printmaking, their Woodzilla Presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them accessible whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist while still guaranteeing a beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. My guest this week is Joshua Orsburn, an artist and collaborative printer in Santa Fe. We talk about formative experiences in his childhood, working at the iconic Landfall Press shortly after attending Tamarind, how we use art to process trauma, and how we make trauma-informed art with thoughtful and responsible methods. As you may have guessed from this intro, we get into it in this episode. We do talk about severe childhood abuse, depression, and a lot of other things. So if you're not in a space to listen to this today, maybe wait on this one. But if you do stick around, you'll get to hear one of the most thoughtful conversations ever to be had on Hello Print Friend. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to do some unpacking with Joshua Orsburn. Hi, Josh. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Welcome back to my home. <laughs> You know, I love being here. We've done a lot of good work over the course of our friendship in making you love my dogs. Uh, luckily, good is a very relative term, <laughs> but I do love your dogs. Yes, I knew it. So I know you and love you. You've been our best friend here in Santa Fe. Oh. And one of the the very, very, very worst things about leaving, for sure. But I hear that in almost every relationship. <laughs> You're the worst thing about leaving. But for anyone who doesn't know you, would you like to start our interview off in Hello Print Friend fashion and just saying who you are, where you are, what you do? Well, my name is Joshua Orsburn. I am currently in Santa Fe, New Mexico with Miranda. And I, well, what you do is such a intense term. It's like, what am I going to be when I grow up? But what I do is I am a collaborative printer who works at Blackrock Editions, formerly known as Landfall Press. And I, I guess I'm kind of the owner of Santa Fe Printing House as well, mm -hmm. working on all the little side gigs that I can. And so this is the part of the interview where traditionally over 200 plus episodes, I ask my guessed about the landscape of their childhood and the role that art Yikes. played in it. But I know you and I know your practice and I know that childhood trauma is 
a theme that informs what you do and specifically your experiences with it. And so I know that this question is a little bit heavier than usual. Is that a fat joke? No. (laughs) Well, luckily it's a beautiful day. The birds are chirping and I am happy to talk about it. And I also know that you are really open about it and have done a lot of your own personal work on it and to get to the point where it can inform your work in a healthy way and you can talk about it in a healthy way. I'd love to give you a space to talk about it and particularly as it relates to your artistic practice and your printmaking, which we'll, we'll talk about later on. Okay, well, I guess we'll start with the beginning. I come from a pretty abusive background, as you can infer from the introduction. <laughs> I, had a, I had a father who used to just beat the living daylights out of my sisters. I have about five half-sisters, four stepsisters. I'm the youngest, the only boy, and my father used to just... Oh, he used to wail on them, and then he would come up to me and go, Don't worry, son. I'll always love you, because you're my only boy. Mm. He had a real hatred towards women, and he was a closeted homosexual and had a lot of issues. We were raised Southern Baptist, raised in Texas. It was a lot of don't ask, don't tell Mm -hmm. kind of mentality. And that kind of did a number on my psyche growing up, but that was the least of my worries (laughs) as we got older, because... Later, my mother found a wonderful man to marry who ended up becoming very influential in my art practice. I lost my virginity at 15 to my stepfather. He was a drunk. Happened about once, at least once a week for upwards of a year. And it was kind of like one of those moments where you're like, I guess it's my turn. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and there was a huge power struggle. He knew he had messed up and... I was just happy he wasn't being mean to me anymore. Yeah. Because he knew better. Mm-hmm. And all of these things kind of came into it. There was plenty of things in between. Sisters in and out of jail, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Needless to say, I don't speak to most of my family anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I have one sister I'm very, very close with. She's a godsend. But the rest of them didn't turn out as well as she did or i did preferably but the reason why i even brought any of that up was because my practice is about my relationships it's about the fear of being alone it's about my trauma it's about anything that you can think of that goes with these themes it's in there Mm -hmm. a little bit of darkness with a little bit of humor yeah 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 absolutely and and in the midst of all of this was art even a part of it did art have a place were you drawing were you seeking refuge from an early age i (laughs) i came from a family where there were so many of us and there was so much going on that i did not talk much i did not have any friends i did not have any influences i had nothing in terms of like what i wanted for myself or as as being as motivating me as a person but when I got to, when I was in school, I had one amazing art teacher, Mrs. Bailey. She was fantastic. She was the first person to ever tell me good job. Oh, and that's powerful. she acknowledged that I was good at something. Oh, did I take that to heart? And did I run with it? <laughs> oh, I ran as fast as I could go with it. I like spent all my free time in the art room. I spent it during lunch. I made my friends there. I did everything I could to be there. 
went to every competition, started to win things. I felt like a person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I was like, okay, if I'm going to be alive, I might as well be doing this because there's nothing else out there for me. Yeah. Yeah. And the work that you were making, I know from your current practice that you're an extremely accomplished drafts person. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Was, was that talent apparent early on? Was that what you think got you your, your good job and, and your accolades? Yes, absolutely. I quickly realized I was like, okay, what, what am I doing? What do I want to be good at? Everyone complains about drawing faces. Everyone complains <laughs> about drawing hands. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be good at those things. I'm going to make sure they're a part of my, <laughs> they're a part of my life because I need to, I was seeking a lot of validation at a really early age because I just didn't get it from my house. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like an easy, an easy win, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and during this time, are you already making that connection between maybe what your formative experiences and those early traumas and the outlet of art? Or is this maybe more subconscious during this time? No, it's definitely more subconscious. I think what I'm feeling, because this is a time where I had divided myself emotionally into multiple people. I had, I had a girlfriend my senior year of high school who ended up coming with me to college and spending two years with me mm. in college. I also should preface the fact that I am definitely a queer individual, but I don't necessarily consider myself bisexual, even though our relationship was very, it was very real at the time. I needed that. But here's a person who is having these issues with his stepfather at the same time he's trying to have his first real relationship with a woman. Yeah. And they can't know about each other. Mm-hmm. And so my home life and my school life were two very separate things. And I was two separate people. Mm-hmm. And... When I got to college, I was so angry. I was I was really, really angry. I was surrounded by these kids who their parents were paying for their education and they were complaining about the dorms and they were complaining about the food. Mm-hmm. They were complaining about having to go to class and they were complaining. And I was just, I was only there because I had one thing that I was good at and I was going to keep doing it and I had to find a way to keep doing it. And so, I don't know, like... It put a lot of struggle on me, and I became incredibly competitive. And my only trajectory had to be forward, because there was no going back. There was no, oh, well, I didn't figure it out, so I'm going to go home and live ho- live with the parents. You know, there was, there was none of that. There was no safety net. Right. So I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And then when I got to college, it was, I was in my foundations year, and... I had a a drawing teacher who I did not enjoy, Mm. and I had a painting teacher who I did not enjoy, (laughs) and I and I was like, oh my god, did I did I make the wrong choice? Like, what am I doing? And I had a fabulous two D design teacher named Leslie Mutchler. She kind of changed my life in a way. I told her I was like, well, I guess I'm going to go into printmaking because I did a little in high school, but I hated it. Uh huh. I was like, God, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I'm going to go into printmaking because I need another outlet. I was like, which one's the most drawing based? And my teacher was like, well, that would be lithography, but that's the hardest one and my least favorite. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you just said the magic words. I'm going right into it and I'm going to be good at it. Yeah. <laughs> you were like, challenge accepted. Pretty yeah. much. Pretty much. That's... 
unfortunately, how my brain operated at that time at such a young age. I was making a lot of poor choices. I did not have my mental health under control. I was not, I didn't have enough therapy at the time, and I did not understand what I was doing. College was really, really hard for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I came from a background where no one had ever asked me if I went to school or had homework. So it's not like I was good at studying. I was not good at the practical aspects. And I was at I was at the University of Texas in Austin. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the best schools in Texas. And, you know, I'm just struggling to keep up. But I knew I was supposed to be there because I deserved it. I knew I deserved it because I had worked really, really hard. When... When you talk about Leslie, the 2D design professor, being really good and having that, having it changed your life, what did that look like in practice? What was she, what was she offering that you really needed at that time? And I, she gave me more of that feedback. She gave me, she gave me excellent feedback. She, she said to me, we had our mid-semester critique and she said to me, I appreciate having you in this class. Because you raised the bar. Nice. She said the other kids try harder. Uh huh. Because of what you make. And yeah. I did not, you know, I didn't prompt her to say anything like that, but there she was in the right place at the right time, making me feel like I was doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all a matter of timing for the, you don't know what these kids are going through. You have no clue what each of these students has, you know? And so I ended up in my first lithography class, which I loved so much that I ended up taking five semesters of lithography in undergrad. (laughs) I just kept taking it. Was there even like a way to like advance? Was it like litho 101, 102, 103? There was a beginning, there was intro to lithography, intermediate lithography, and then intermediate and advanced. Okay. So you there was three stages, and then the final ones ended up like a personal practice kind of gotcha. thing. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, my professors retired halfway through my journey in college, and I was like, okay, I guess I'm on my own again. <laughs> oh, no, abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it worked out. Tom Drucker, Margaret Simpson, they were just fabulous. Tom was in a wheelchair, and he'd wheel in every day, and he'd go, remember, kids, stones are heavy and art is hard, and then just wheel right out the room as fast as he could. <laughs> He was the funniest man I've ever met. Yeah. They would work together in tandem and they were just such an excellent team and they just kept you laughing and they kept pushing you. Every time I talk to people about their experience in print, I don't think anyone's had quite the experience I had when I was there. Yeah. I I feel like that sounds like a story from, from the 20th century when I hear about people who are when I hear from people who are in their 50s now about their instructors and the kind of personality and moxie that would come out in like professors in the 1960s. Oh, absolutely. That's what that sounds like. With I was Tom. definitely right there with them. Like, yeah, Tom used to read from the obituaries in class. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. He would read the newspaper. He would preface every thing that he said to the class he'd say please announce to your class and then announce whatever he was going to announce he was (laughs) purely chaos in the best possible way that's amazing and i was at a point in my life where i had yet to find good people right Mm -hmm. so the good people stood out oh they stood out so big in my head they became my heroes so fast because i realized at a really early age they're 
in an oversimplification of things that there are two types of people in this world. There are those who have their heroes and they have to learn to like grow past their heroes and move on. And then there are those who have nothing but examples of what not to be. Mm, mm -hmm. And they create a very different personality. Yeah. And I definitely had the latter and it's, it pushed me because I, I, I'm this 19 year old kid who barely wants to be alive. Like just trying to find something that he enjoys doing something that's going to move him forward. I was, yeah, I was making a lot of poor choices. <laughs> <laughs> so many bad choices. And then I made, I, I did make it. I got through college. I actually didn't the first round. I, I finished college with lacking three college, three credits. Mm. And I was too depressed to go back and finish those three credits. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, it's not for me. At, at this point, had you had you been in therapy? Had you ever talked about your childhood trauma to, to anyone? Where were you on that healing journey? I'd done a little bit of therapy. But honestly, this is where my practice came into play. I would say that a majority of my practice has been the art therapy that I needed. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in college talking about really sensitive subjects. And it was really tough because... I had these professors who, as you know, in our current climate in academia, you have to be very careful what you say to students. And I don't blame them for this. I don't, I don't get upset, but they could not critique me mm -hmm. and they could not give me feedback because they were too worried they'd offend me or they were too worried that they would say the wrong thing, which more power to them, yeah. you know, but that did not help me. I, I needed some, some tough love to get better. And the only people who were offering that at the time were my print professors. Uh-huh. I had I had this one critique in college that really stuck with me. I there was this very privileged girl in my etching class who she said to me, she goes, I don't like the way that you talk about your art because I feel like you're trying to take people emotionally hostage. Mm-hmm. And and that really stuck with me in a weird way because I thought to myself, I was like, first of all, I can't believe that me talking about my trauma affects you that much. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that wants to just blow it off and say, well, that's her problem. But then there was the other part of me that is very sensitive and really cares about how I affect people and how I address people. And I thought to myself, okay, maybe it's not my place to put people in a position of hearing things they don't want to hear. Hmm. And that was a tough one for me. And it's still to this day, I'm like, how far do I communicate without going to a point where people shut their ears? Mm. You know, they're not listening anymore because they're uncomfortable. That's such a such an important question. I think one I'd really like to ponder a bit together at, at some point in this chat. But just for context, what kind of work were you making at this point that you, this, the professors were having a bit of difficulty giving you feedback on well i was doing a lot of the cliche printing tropes i would stamp my body on the stones uh -huh. 
I made these body pillows by sewing them together and then making people cuddle with me. <laughs> the usual. I was making. I have never heard of that. So I, I love was, that you're like pandered. <laughs> I did these pieces where I would put them up on it, on the wall as like family portraiture, like the staggered picture frames with my body pillows up and talk about the abuse in my family and things like that, all in installation. And it was kind of like, we look at it, we pondered it for a moment, and then we moved on. And I was like, really? I spent a long time on that. Yeah. I guess we're only going to spend a few minutes on it today. Yeah, and and that you're there to get feedback. I mean, why why be in school right. at all? Why be paying the money? That is the question. Why is anyone <laughs> in school right now paying the money? For art school. Yeah. It's a tough one. Because at least at the end of the day, I can say I got a skill out of it. Mm. You know, I found something that I could not have possibly found on my right. own time. And that was print. You know. Yeah, for sure. Another reason why the print classes were so influential to me was because it was the most community-based medium. Right. These are the people who will spend every waking hour with you and then wake up at three in the morning and go get tacos at the local at the local taco shop down the road in austin texas and then go back to the print shop and keep working because we had 24 hour access nice you know we could be there as much as we wanted to be you know i was the only person using the full sheet stones and i would have five of them on the table at a time and just go to town (laughs) Uh, it was really fun but yes i i leave um school And I didn't really graduate, and I was working as a line cook at a fine dining steakhouse, and I was so depressed, (laughs) as you can imagine. And I was, uh, my old professors, my old lithography professors have a workshop in Austin called Slugfest, and I used to rent a little time there, and I would work all day at at the fine dining joint, and then I would go to Slugfest and make prints at night, and I would just do that constantly. All while bouncing around from a relationship to relationship, just trying to figure out what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And then I get this Facebook message from my old etching professor, Lee Chesney, who's no longer with us, but he was an amazing professor. He, He said, hey, Josh, I just got this message from Tamarin that said they're looking for students and I would happily give you a recommendation if you would want to apply. It didn't even cross my mind. This is the middle of May. Just for clarification, they normally stop accepting or stop applications to Tamarin in February. Right. So I'm thinking, why are they asking for people in May? And uh, I end up getting recommendations from the head printer at Flatbed Press and Tom and Margie at Slugfest and putting my application together and then a week later getting an acceptance to go to Tamarind. And I was so amazed at the speed and the quality and all the things that came together to make this happen. And then I realized that this was for the August school year. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) I'm going to figure out how to get there. (laughs) So I did a GoFundMe and everyone I was talking about supported me and got me enough money together that I was able to break my lease, get a moving truck, find a place and move to New Mexico in about two to three months. That's incredible. And then I started one of the hardest years of my life. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And like such little time to process the move, to process 
and I, I I would guess, and and you can tell me if if I'm wrong, You're but wrong. <laughs> no, of course. That as someone who grew up feeling really unsupported, isolated, without community, to process all of those people being like, no, 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 you, Joshua Orsburn, like we want you to succeed, and then doing what it took to get you there like that had to have been overwhelming it it is and it still is because none of these people are not a part of my life anymore i mean i still try to visit them as much as i can and i think about them all the time and um yeah i got got to tamarind and i i was a little cocky at first (laughs) because i was like oh i got this (laughs) And oh, how I was wrong. <laughs> um, um, I was. I realized what had happened was I was going to be in Brandon and Valbury and Diana's first full class. They had worked with students prior, but in like smaller semesters. But this was like Brandon Gunn's first full class from the first semester to the second semester. So I think a lot of people were a little wary. They were like, should we go to Tamarind? Everyone's new. We don't know what state the program's in. Mm-hmm. Like, what's it going to be like? So let's hold off and see. And so they had these openings and they were like, we need to fill them. And I was very fortunate to fill one of those openings. Um, it changed my life again. Like, mm-hmm. each, It's funny because talking in this interview, it's like there's these pivotal moments and they're very obvious of like, when did I take the left fork? When did I take the right fork? You know, and where am I now? Yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah, like, if you just hadn't responded to the Facebook message. Right. You know, if you, exactly. if you just, if or if it had gotten you on a day when the depression was particularly bad. That's I mean, true. that's... That's very true. Like, that's, um, it's like internal and external right. circumstances have to line up. That's true. Mm-hmm. Well, I ended up going to Tamarind in 2016 through to 2017. And that was an especially rough year for me because first I got a big, some bad news. I, it was around October of 2016 that I was diagnosed with HIV and, um, the the depression hit hard and there was a part of me that was like, you know what? You deserve this. You've done a lot of bad things and this is the, this is the result, cause and effect. And I know now that that is obviously not true, Mm -hmm. but in that moment, it was really tough because I'm in this program that doesn't let up and pushes you really hard. And then to kind of feel everything, you feel weaker and you feel everything going away. Like I kind of ignored it for a little bit. And when I finally went to go get my levels tested, they pretty much told me I was in AIDS range. Yeah. They were like, if we don't get you on treatment now, like you're not going to make it, you mm-hmm. know, kind of thing. And I, at the time I had a really supportive partner and I was so depressed. I was like, I guess I'm not going to make it then. That's just right. how it works. You know, that's what I get. And, um, he told me, he was like, if you do not do this, I can't support you. I can't be with you. Yeah. You have to take care of yourself. And I realized everything I've done up until now has been for other people. Hmm. And why change that now? (laughs) So, um, um, I went to college because my sister said, you have to go to college. And I said, okay, 
I went to Tamron because my professor said, you need to apply for Tamron. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. And then my partner said, you don't deserve to die. And I said, <laughs> okay, I guess. God, drama queen, right? And with with treatment, did some of the physical symptoms subside? And did you feel healthier and, and more able to do the it work? Was, it's hard to like know because like... Cameron has this notorious, like, trend of, like, really wearing you out and then building you back up with strength. So, like, I don't know how much of it was my health and how much of it was just me getting stronger from printing every day. Just lifting the rocks. Yeah, just lifting the rocks. Yeah. (laughs) Who needs a hydraulic lift? You have Josh here. I'm going to lift the rocks. Yeah. But, yeah. And it was an interesting time. And then, a little more for you, that same year, I had my grandmother pass away and my sister pass away from cancer. And and then Trump got elected, the worst of them. Oh. So it was like... <laughs> the national trauma. I remember yeah. sitting there in the Tamron room printing and everyone just put their rollers down and just kind of sat together in silence for a moment when we were listening to the election in the middle of the night. Yeah. Oh, that was so heartbreaking. Yeah. But. Yeah. So you've... You're at Tamron. You're kind of getting some blow-by-blows coming at you. Right. At that point, were you being able to put any of that into the work? I know Tamarind's maybe a bit more technical than right. emotional. Well, when I was at Tamarind, I, I've always been kind of a crazy person in terms of, like, making art. I've always, like, there's never been a deadline I didn't meet or a piece that I didn't do twice as much as I should have. Mm-hmm. And when I was at Tamarind, I did every project... I was probably one of two people in my class who didn't turn in a single thing late, but I also made separate additions on every single test stone. So, like, we would turn one project in and I would do two. Mm-hmm. And I would practice the techniques twice because I really wanted to, like, figure it out so I could be ready for what they were going to throw at you next. And I was, like, sneaking in and making my own work at night, too, in between things, because and they would always yell at me. They'd be like, you're not an artist here. You're you're becoming a printer. And I was like, that's fine. That's fine. But I'm still an artist. Uh-huh. And, and that's not going to make me any less of a printer. But I'm going to keep trying. And so, yeah, all this stuff is making its way into the work. I'm... I'm making lots of figurative work. I'm photographing my partners, and we're, like, putting each other in obscene... We're putting each other in positions that like aren't possible and like there's always a little bit of negativity in each piece but there's also kind of humor like a little bit of humor in there like mm-hmm. i have this one piece that i that i'm particularly fond of that has me lying on the ground and then my partner lying on top of me and we kind of look like a mountain range uh-huh and i just titled it just another new mexican landscape <laughs> <laughs> because i just thought it was funny yeah. and i just think that like it's important to make things funny because that's how you're going to get through things is mm. with humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the work is supposed to be funny because if I take myself too seriously, I'm not going to be here. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah. <laughs> and just to preface all this as well, I'm on a lot of medication and my life's better now than it's ever been. So don't worry too much. <laughs> this is not a cry for help. <laughs> this is not a cry for help. I am not a victim in any way, shape or form. Yeah. I, I work on my mindfulness and I work on my ability to understand things. I, I wouldn't 
trade any of this for the world because if I regretted anything that had ever happened to me, then that regrets who I am. And mm. I don't regret who I am because we are a product of our experiences, as we all know. And I kind of like who I am. So I work very hard. And I and I get the opportunity to elevate artists around me as a collaborative printer. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. That's beautifully put. Yeah. I think now would be a good time to dive into that question we sort of tiptoed around earlier, which is the one about when you're making trauma-informed work, how much goes into it? How graphic is it? At what point do we worry about matters of taste? At what point do you worry about being so loud and confronting that any message gets lost and do you even care about any of that do we as people who care about good art care about any of that it's so this question is so funny to me like most things because (laughs) i look at other queer artists out there and how many of them are pretty much just drawing porn Uh uh-huh which is fine i love i love porn yeah who doesn't love porn but I don't think that they sit down and think to themselves, oh, should I be drawing this guy in a jockstrap? Should I be drawing Tom of Finland? I don't think it even occurs to them whether or not they should be or are allowed to. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, the moment you have trauma-informed work, people are like, oh, you're really crossing some lines. You're going to upset somebody. Uh Uh-huh. And I think, I don't want to upset people. I want to relate to people. I want people to go oh my God, I've had a really similar experience and I've never heard someone talk about it. Like, I've been fortunate enough to have a few of those moments and those are the moments when I feel like what I'm doing matters. When I can talk to somebody and they tell me their story. Mm. And it wasn't a, you're offending me with your story, like that one girl. It was a, I don't feel so alone in this moment. And that's all I want. That's all. Just that little thing just right that, there. Just that little thing of just wiping away existential loneliness. Yeah. The <laughs> it's usual. Fine. It's, it's fine. fine. Easy. It's fine. Oh my God. <laughs> so easy. Yeah. Uh, I get really specific with my trauma, like, because I know that it's mine and that no one's going to get it. So I feel safe in that fact. Like I put in phrases that I have a piece where I literally put in phrases that were said to me during some of these events. Mm-hmm. But no one knows that. Mm-hmm. But it matters to me. Yeah. You know, like, what someone whispers in your ear when they're attacking you, essentially, is like, that's between me and the attacker. But at the same time, now it's between me and everyone else. Because mm-hmm. uh, I ha- it has to go somewhere, and it's not going to stay with me. Yeah. I don't want it. Well, you can have it. And there's that. I think there's that really wise phrase that shame dies in places where stories are told safely. Bomb. Did you just make that up? That's so wise, Miranda. No, I think I got it from Brene Brown. She's a shame researcher. Mm, good, good. <laughs> but like, I think that's why human connection and safety in human relationships is so important. Because how else do we create safe spaces to tell what haunts us? Well, I feel that right now, where it's like, if you can't tell your friends your trauma, who can you tell them? Yeah. You know? Like, and Tamron, I personally didn't have an amazing time at Tamarind, but that wasn't Tamarind's fault. That was entirely me and what I was bringing to the table emotionally and what I was able to handle. 
I was 20, I was 23. And I, if I would have done it over, I would have waited. I would have waited. I would have been a little more mature. I would have been a little further along in my healing process. But things happen for a reason. And I was there, which when I finally finished Tamarind and was not selected for the second year, it was fine. It wasn't fine, but it was fine. <laughs> and because I obviously thrive on people telling me good things, not negative things. I ended up um, interning at Landfall Press and um, in Santa Fe. And that was really tough. I remember my very first day at Landfall. I think Chris would find this funny. But Chris and Steve Campbell, they're the lead people at Landfall currently, which is now known as Black Rock Editions. The very first day, I come in as an intern, and Chris says to me, if you're ever a minute late, don't bother showing up, because we have no use for you. <laughs> and were, I, you were you a minute late? or was I was just... not. I was very early. Okay. Um, I realized, I was like, these might be my people. Um, uh-huh. I got there, and I was like, family? <laughs> um, I didn't find it off-putting at all. It was really funny. I just kind of giggled. And, uh, and I remember, I interned there for three or four months and then was very fortunate that one of the other printers at the time quit in a huff and they were forced to kind of look at me as a little more than just an intern and they ended up letting me stay on and that was six years ago Uh uh-huh i'll be by the time this airs i'll be 30 Mm-hmm. I gave them my entire 20s, Miranda. <laughs> Your best years. My, my best years all went to Landfall Press. Now Black Rock Editions. <laughs> Your best stone-lifting years. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And I remember I, during that time, I started interning there a week before I finished at Tamarind. So I finished everything a week early at Tamarind and then just left and started interning at Landfall. I was, I was like so excited and... I would wake up at five in the morning and I would ride my bike a few miles downtown Albuquerque, which is kind of scary, down to the train and get on the 622 AM train, get to Santa Fe around eight, ride my bike three miles to the shop, get and start at nine, work from nine to five, rode my bike back, got home by 8 PM and did that for months, mm-hmm. you know, and they were very long. What is that? Like eight 15 hour days yeah yeah 15 hour days with all the printing involved as well so of course it was very taxing but it meant a lot to me so i was gonna do it yeah Um, and for for people who might not be aware of landfall can you talk a little bit about that experience of going from being a tamarind student being essentially sort of like a fresh graduate student mm mm-hmm to being dropped into one of the most professional shops in the country. I mean, it, with the artists you were working with and that the, the level of money, the level of perfectionism. If I learned anything from my time at Tamarind and then moving over to Landfall, it was I learned how to filter and control my mouth. Really? Yeah, <laughs> because that has been a struggle my entire life. But what I learned was when to speak and when to chime in because at the end of the day these people aren't at the level they're at because they don't know what they're doing Uh they don't need me to come in and talk about what i just learned Uh uh-huh they don't need me 
to come in. They just need me to do my job, do it well, and show people that essentially that I can roll with the punches and learn Mm -hmm. new things. Because at the end of the day, every printer you run into does it differently. Mm. And each one of those printers are going to tell you that the way they do it is the best way to do it. Uh Uh-huh. Which is fine. Everyone does what works for them. But it's your job, as the new guy, to come in and acclimate. To do your absolute best and not run your mouth. <laughs> like, and, I, and I know that sounds like rude and sounded crazy, but it's true. You go to these places and people who are fresh out of school, they want to tell you all the things they know because they're very excited about it. And they want to tell you all the ways that they do it. But at the end of the day, it's not your shop. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're just doing your best to elevate what's around you. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Were there any artists that you worked with early on that you were really intimidated by or kind of starstruck i know now you're you're mr cool who just prints for judy chicago but oh like God. i did not get to print for judy chicago oh, no, unfortunately you she she came around before i got there oh, okay and i don't and i don't necessarily want to i mean i've worked with a, a lot of artists in the last six years there some of my favorites have been like james drake and terry allen mm-hmm. uh, mocha leger they're always fun in different ways but i remember the first time i worked with james drake he came in and we had set up a we had set up a full like life drawing set in the studio in the shop for him. Like we had nude models and everything for him to just work from. And I was going to be pulling mono, monotypes for him. He would just draw and I'd run it. He'd draw and run it. And I remember because Steve was out of town and Jack was behind the desk and they trusted me enough to do it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I remember James Drake would hold the pencil up. And wait for me to come and take it from him to sharpen it for him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I said, What a I, little diva. <laughs> and I thought to myself, No, 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 no. I know I'm young, but I'm 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 not stupid. <laughs> and so I remember the next day he came in, I took an extension cord in a very in a very how do I say this? Obvious way. Uh-huh. I took this extension cord and I didn't go to the nearest plug-in, I went to one across the studio. <laughs> And I plugged this plug in all the way across the studio and I walked it to his station and I put the only electric pencil sharpener in the studio at his station. And he walked in and he saw it and he laughed because he knew. Yeah. And then he was fine with me for the rest of the time we were together. I love that. Like you just, you just had to just push back. Just, just a little just bit. A little, just set a I mean, little Jack boundary. Jack is known for pushing back. That's yeah. kind of his thing. Yeah. And so who am I not to learn from the way they operate, you know, and that's my favorite part about the shop is I, that's one of the things I've noticed about a lot of printers is that a lot of printers out there, they bring in the artist and the artist is the idea man. The artist is the only person who's going to make this piece. And so the artist picks the colors, the artist makes the, draws the mylars, draws on the stone, does all the work, does all this work. And then the printer goes, okay, etches it and prints it. Mm -hmm. And that's the collaboration. Yeah. Well, at Landfall, it was very different. It was... Jack sometimes had these moments where he would have a project in mind and go, okay, let's find an artist that can do this project. Hmm. Which was insane to me at the time. 
But, like, we really push people aesthetically and technically. Like, we have a preference towards people who draw, but we do every type of work. And, you know, like, we get in there and, like, we help the artists make their matrices. And we, like, give them all... We give them the best of our expertise, like, when it comes to everything. Like, whether it be color or techniques or anything. Because it is our job to make... A higher elevated piece because a lot of these artists they're going to be printing with like a handful of printers in their lifetime mm. what's going to make your prints any more significant than the other guys you know like why would they come to you what's the point mm-hmm. so it's your job as a printer to elevate the work and make them want to work with you totally yeah and i'm a firm believer in that yeah and then what about Santa Fe Printing House. Let's just start with prefacing that in 2020, Landfall turned into BlackRock. And then, of course, we got hit by the pandemic and things got really wild. And then recently in this past year, in 2022, I kind of had a moment where I've spent six years at Landfall slash BlackRock. And I've worked with Steve Campbell this entire time. I've learned every... I've earned every... I don't want to say I've learned everything that he has to offer because he is has so much to offer that like I think it's impossible to learn everything he has to offer but I've learned a lot I've learned a lot about etching I've learned a lot about litho I've learned a lot about collaborating and I can only thank Steve for that but I feel like at this point finally feel the confidence to like do a little more of this on my own Mm -hmm. and so I started working with you and (laughs) Tim Pauschak and we made Santa Fe Printing House and it was really great And it's going to stay great now that you guys are moving. (laughs) But we we started working with different types of artists, like tattoo artists and local artists and people who have no idea what printmaking is and had no idea they'd ever have the opportunity to work with printmakers because they don't really have huge careers. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I was like, now's my chance to kind of like stretch my legs and have some fun because I have a second job at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. I work at BlackRock and I do Santa Fe Printing House. So these are very easy 60 to 70 hour weeks. Yeah. And, uh, but everything I've done up until now has like prepared me for this. I think I'm terrified of running a business. I always thought I would be working for people, mm-hmm. but I obviously am not going to be working for people my entire life because that's not the direction that things are going right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to keep pushing. For those of you who don't know a lot about shop operations, there are, I'm doing mostly contract printing, the occasional publishing, but I definitely want to get into some classes and some tutoring. Yeah. Because I think the more people who know about this medium, the better. And the more you can educate the consumer, the better. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, printmaking has that thing where the more people understand what went into it, the more likely they are to truly see it as beautiful. Yeah, it makes yeah. it more desirable. It makes it art to yeah. them. Yeah. Not a reproduction. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. As we're kind of wrapping up, I did want to ask you about... Maybe just advice for for artists or for for anyone who wants to use art to work through trauma. And and that could be someone who's just starting a BFA or it could be someone who's 
in their 50s somewhere realizing like, man, I never dealt with that. Just in terms of your experience, what would you want them to hear in the spirit of connecting? I, one of the things that I found myself doing wrong in the beginning was I would pick these themes and I would work, make work about them. But then I found myself being reminded of my trauma uh-huh. and it turned into a revolving door. Mm-hmm. Rather than getting it out, it came back around. Oof. And so if I had any advice, I would say make the work, then move on. Uh-huh. Make new work and then move on. And then figure out those moments when you've made progress and acknowledge them. Mm-hmm. Because if you can acknowledge that you've made progress... You've already escaped the revolving door. Right. And now you have a new revolving door, but you get to keep moving forward, you know, mm-hmm. and it makes a big difference. I, I realized in this interview, like we spent so much time talking about the path that I've taken to being a printer and not as much about the actual work itself. But if anyone looks at my work and has any questions about it, I encourage them to message me or talk to me about it because I use a lot of tropes in my work that are relatable and one of those things is I really prefer drawing and uh-huh. I prefer figurative and I realized at the end of the day that I want to be in conversation with people who don't look at art oh I love that and the people who don't look at art they respond to images of themselves mm-hmm. they respond to images that are crafted in a way that they can't see themselves crafting you know so I choose to draw And I choose to show people. And I think that that's important for the people who don't look at art because they can respond to that. So when you're saying connecting with people who who don't look at art regularly, do you think that the the draftsmanship and the figurative quality of your work, is that the doorway that you're kind of speaking about that you think is more of an entry point than if you had a black square and you were like, it's trauma. (laughs) I genuinely do believe that because what are the things that you hear when you talk to your family or to your neighbor or your coworker who doesn't look at art? They go, I could have done that. Uh They go, what am I looking at? They go, they, it's not like they're asking to be spoon fed, but if you have something for them that they can latch onto the better because when you wake up in the morning what is the first thing you do you go into the mirror and you look at yourself you brush your teeth you perform for yourself Mm -hmm. you go through the motions and then you move on the thing that you are used to seeing is yourself and that's gonna be the first gateway into looking at art is the human body body. yeah yeah and with that being said i also wanted to touch on the point of why i mainly draw male figures and A lot of that comes back to the fact that my father had this huge disrespect for women. And it became to a point where I don't feel like I have the right to draw women. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, no matter what I do, all I have to offer is the male gaze. I have my interpretation of women. Because that's what drawing is. It's an interpretation of life. Right. And... I don't feel like it's my place 
And so I stick to drawing male figures and I stick to my relationships and I stick to drawing myself Hmm. because those are the things that I know best. And I just feel like I just don't have the right to take on that subject matter. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it the thing that really sticks out for me is you talking about that even what we would call hype, like hyper realism or realism, or as I say, just like that really exacting draftsmanship. I think people do sometimes associate that with fact. So it's like, this is an interpretation. Impressionism is an interpretation. Right. But of course, now that you say it, it's like, well, of course everything is an, Interpreted. Everything comes through right. the filter of the artist. Art is just a game of telephone, and we're all collages. <laughs> like, we just take from our experiences, we take from what we see, we take from what other people see, and we collage them together and claim that it's new. Mm. You know, we. it's like that whole, that whole thing where you can't dream things you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. You know, like, our brain psychology is very specific. Yeah. You know, and people try to do autonomic drawing. They try to draw like children. They try to turn it off. They try to be something else. They try to interpret things in ways that they feel are going are adding something to it. And I think that that's all valid. It's just not for me. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. I like I said I want to talk to the person who doesn't give a shit about your concept. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's fine. I think concept is everything because even illustration is conceptual. You know, I'm illustrating trauma, but you can't say there weren't any ideas behind it. Uh-huh. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And at the end of the day, my real goal is if someone hates my work, I don't want them to look at it and go and say anything other than at least it's well done. (laughs) (laughs) You can always have that. (laughs) Yes, because I need that. (laughs) I need that for myself still. I have Mm -hmm. yet to grow out of it. Yeah. Do you think that that holding yourself to that high of a standard? I mean, I would guess it's something of a double-edged sword. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But what is depression other than a double-edged sword? It's it's the moment when you realize, I need to do better. That you realize, oh, I don't care if I do better. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a strange one. It's all cyclical and we're all fighting against ourselves and just hoping we come out on the other side in a better than when we started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so. Is that is that a beautiful note to end on? <laughs> if you want it to be. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like we've we've covered the things you wanted to wanted to say about your work and your process? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're still we're still in town for another few weeks, so I know. You can always call me up again. <laughs> right. Well, where can people find you and see your work? Well, predominantly my work is on Instagram right now. You can just find me at Joshua P. Orsburn. And I'm sure there'll be links on the Hello Print Friend page, mm-hmm. which would be great. 
I have spent a long time working as a printer now that, well, not a long time, long in the relationship to my life. I've spent a long time being a printer that I have not put the focus into my personal practice that I think it it warrants or deserves. So I don't have a website right now and I'm not showing right now, but I think that that will change soon. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming on and talking to me. Thank you for coming to love my dogs. (laughs) Dogs are lovable. Yeah. I'm not a sociopath. I'm just traumatized. <laughs> there it is. That's that's the the quote at the beginning. <laughs> well, thank you, and thank you for being a friend to Tim and I during our time here. And I know it will continue. I will forever be your B. Arthur. Thank you for being a friend. <laughs> If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon, where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Robert Arbor, founder of Arbor & Sons Editions in Marfa, Texas. We recorded this episode on-site in Robert's studio in this iconic art town. We talk about his journey to printmaking after working in a car design studio in Detroit, going to Tamarind in the 1970s, making motorcycles that go very, very fast, and printing, collaborating, and drinking with Donald Judd. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.